We will read from God's Word, and then we will ask for the Lord to be able to speak to us. Our passage this morning continues on in our series on the Beatitudes and comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. Let's read together. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You know, the words that um, Jesus speaks here are very serious words. And from this, these verses, I think it's very clear here that one of the things that we're going to be talking about today is anger, and especially anger in relation to reconciliation, that is Christian reconciliation. And there's three things I'd like to cover today. One of the first things I'd like to do is I'd like us to look at anger in us, anger in you. Then I would like to look at anger in others. And then the third part afterwards is how do we let go of anger and get rid of it, okay? Anger in, in you anger in others, and then what do we do? How do we get rid of anger? You know, the uh, words that Jesus speaks here, you know, come as part of six statements that he's going to make that all begin with, you have heard that it was said. You have heard that it was said over and over again. And in each of these sections, sections Jesus actually spe- speaks against something, and then he raises the issue of something else. And he raises the bar, actually, significantly with regards to the things that God requires. Now, for example, adultery isn't just condemned, but he actually condemns lust as well, which is internal inside the heart. He doesn't say, just don't, doesn't leave it with don't hate your enemies, but actually you have to love them as a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, the call that Jesus makes here is absolutely stunning in really all of these cases. Nobody else taught like this in the first place. But the question that we need to answer is, what exactly is Jesus saying here? And what is he against? You know, it appears here that he's quoting Scripture, but is he then contradicting the very law of God? And now the answer to that is, I don't think so. And part of the reason why I would say that is that if you notice when you read the text that it actually says here, it doesn't say, it is written, you shall not so and so and so and so, or in this case, murder. But actually it says here, but rather, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. 
So this is actually, I think, a combination of two texts uh, in the Old Testament, uh, one from the, Dec- from the Ten Commandments, uh, Exodus 20, verse 13, and the other probably from Numbers chapter 35. Um, all this to say is that I think when Jesus, what Jesus is doing here by saying you have heard that it was said and pairing it with these scriptures is that he's actually not highlighting the Old Testament scriptures themselves, but the erroneous teaching in the tradition of the scribes and the Pharisees that went along with this scripture instead. So the scribes and the Pharisees regularly taught things to the people, but oftentimes they taught by saying, Rabbi Hillel says this, or Rabbi Shimai says this, and so on, and continuing to build on it. Now, why this is important is because it's so different from Jesus. When Jesus talks, actually Jesus says, but I say to you, in clear contradiction or distinction from the way that the Pharisees taught. It's actually really hard to realize how stunning this statement is uh, when you think about it. For example, in our province right now, as we continue to grapple with COVID-19, when Bonnie Henry says things like, keep two meters apart, who has the authority in our province to get up and to say, but I say to you, keep two inches apart? Now, that is very close if you were to keep only two inches apart. But the question is, authority. To make a statement like, but I say to you, in contradiction to what another authority figure has said, means that you have to have either equal or greater authority than that other person. And that's why this statement from Jesus is so bold and so significant, because implied within his statement is that he has an authority, an ability to supersede the teachings of the religious experts of his day. And coming from the one who just declared himself a few verses earlier to be the fulfillment of the law, it makes absolutely complete sense. So Jesus is declaring that his interpretation is not only different from what came before him, but it's also right as well. It's the right one and you should listen to him. You know, for us who live in this world who have access to Bibles, I think it's important for us to realize that uh, Having the ability to just read God's Word directly and not to just hear it through an intermediary is an incredible privilege. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous Welsh preacher, actually compared uh, this text to the time of the Protestant Reformation. You know, for a long time, people during those uh, ages were having to live and listen to actually clergy who taught them the Bible. And when they went to the Catholic Mass, everything was done in Latin. So the people actually had no idea what was going on, and they fully relied on their teachers to explain it to them. Now, when Bibles began circulating in Europe in the common language of the people, it changed the game completely as people were able to look at the words of God themselves and see and hear God's voice and realize that their teachers were actually in error. And so the Reformation actually uh, began to spread. Now, what's interesting about that is that this is actually very comparable to the time of the Jews living with Jesus, and that many of them were probably Aramaic-speaking. Maybe they weren't that good at Hebrew, and so they relied on their religious leaders, their scribes, the Pharisees, and the teachers to explain to them how the law functioned. And so they absorbed, as a result of the erroneous teaching, a warped view of the law of God. And I think this is what results in what we know today as legalism. They had turned the law of God into a sort of ladder to try to establish your own sense of righteousness and to work your way to God and try to get to heaven. And so they drifted actually from the source, from the word of God. 
Now, following, keeping that in mind, knowing that the Pharisees and the teaching of Jesus' day was in error, can you see what the problem is with their teaching with regards to murder was? So if you look at the text, according to Jesus' citation of the Pharisees here, what's the problem with murder? You shall not murder. Why? Because whoever murders will be liable to judgment. That is a judicial proceeding. You'll go to court, you know, and stuff. Now that's fair, okay? Judgment by an Israelite court, but it's kind of short, right? That's primarily it. Nothing said here about the wrath of God. Nothing said here about the denigration of his image or why actually the sin is so wrong. You know, it's very important to understand why something is actually wrong. So, for example, in B.C., if you were to go speeding on our highways, which are not like the German autobahns, which have no speed limit, but you were to do 200 kilometers an hour and get pulled over by a cop, and the cop asks you, uh, do you know what's wrong with what you're doing? I can't believe you were doing that. Do you know what's wrong with what you were doing? And if you look at that cop and you say, is it wrong because I'll get a ticket? The cop will look at you and say, no. The reason it is wrong and you should not be doing that is you could kill someone with your negligence here. The speed limit is clearly 100 kilometers on the highway and you were going at twice as that, as that much and are endangering other people. It's a shame to think that the only reason you think it's wrong is because you're going to get a ticket. It's wrong because you're reckless. See, that's, that's, it's really important to understand why something is wrong to do. To simply say it's wrong because you're going to get a ticket or you face judgment really kind of misses the point of it here. Now, Jesus, in his three statements here, is going to correct some of the faulty opinions about sin and the problems or the things that the Pharisees have been teaching about what God expected through the law. And he's going to set the record straight here by showing just how serious sin is how bad it is and what the problem is with sin. So it says, for example, in here, in his first part, when he's talking about murder, really, he's essentially saying to them, you think that murder is a big problem because you'll go to court? Guess what? If you think that's a problem, guess what? In God's eyes, anger alone actually is enough to get you on trial. So he's using that sort of same language and analogy of saying, like, guess what? Look at the court system. Really, if, if you want to talk about what's really problematic, what's inside your heart actually should land you on trial. And then he actually goes further with the second one when he says, look, if you even insult your brother, guess what? You should go to the council. That is uh, a word that is used here, Sanhedrion, right? Which means the uh, Sanhedrin or the Jewish ruling council, uh, which basically was the leadership, supreme religious leadership of the people of Israel. Uh, the highest body, you know, that they had available to them and who took care of all matters related to faith and life. And Jesus is saying here, look, if you insult your brother, uh, that's who you should actually go to see. It's very serious. You know, the Greek uh, translation of this actually says, literally, if you call your brother raka, you know what I mean, or you use this word to describe him. It's kind of hard to translate, but kind of has the meaning of like you empty head or like... Uh, you, uh, you numbskull or you dummy, something of that sort. It's not swearing, I would say, but it's certainly not a compliment either. It's quite rude, you know, to be able to call someone that, related to a lack of intelligence. So what Jesus is saying here is that, you know what? You don't understand. Even calling someone an idiot, you know, should lend you up in this kind of trouble, major faith trouble. 
And then he really drives it home, actually, with his last analogy. And you see where he's going here. And he says that if you call someone a fool, this will actually result in your judgment before God in hellfire. That's how serious it is here. And at that point, you want to ask, and you think, wow, really, really, Jesus? Is it really that serious? Are you saying that insults and anger in God's eyes are what really should send you to court and even to hell? How can that be? The question we have to ask here is, how important is the heart to God? And I would say that the heart is infinitely important to God. And the difficulty that we have in understanding this is not because uh, there's a problem with God, but because there's a problem in the way that we view the human heart and what is really at the essence of sin. Look at what the Bible has to say, for example, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. The text says, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Proverbs 16, 12, 16, 2. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. See, what's so astounding about what Jesus has to say here is that not murdering is not good enough to justify you in God's eyes. The act of anger and hatred in your heart is really as good as murderer. So don't rely on the fact that you haven't killed anybody and say that I'm good as a result of it. Now, what is murder? Okay. And what constitutes murder? Of course, murder is the killing, yeah, I mean, of another human being. But when you look at it spiritually, there's more that we can say. 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, you know, says this. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has an eternal life abiding in him. In other words, to harbor anger in your own heart towards your fellow disciple is actually dangerous to your own soul. It's actually the opposite of how Jesus would identify his people to the world, right? Jesus said, by this all people will know you are my disciples by the anger you have for, no, by the love you have for one another. Completely the opposite. Now, murder intuitively, I think, horrifies us. And But what we don't realize is actually that murder starts off as a little baby called anger. And then that baby grows up into a child called hatred. And when that child is fully grown, that child becomes an adult named murder. And what's scary is that all of us have these children in various degrees. And therefore, if that is actually true, nobody is actually better than anybody else in this world. Now, let me just be clear here to say that I don't think Jesus is saying, you shall never be angry. I think there's such a thing as righteous anger. Now, I love what the former NFL tight end Benjamin Watson said in his reflections on the police killing of George Floyd just this last uh, week. He says, being a Christ follower doesn't mean we can't get angry. Jesus got angry. God was angry a whole lot of times. But the Bible does say, in your anger, do not sin. Do not allow your anger to make you do or say something that is contrary to what you should be doing as a follower of Christ. We are to be justice warriors, but our method in doing so needs to be distinctly Christ-like. And see, this is, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul cautions in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 to 27, when he says, Be angry and do not sin. 
Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the de- an opportunity to the devil. So, some anger doesn't lead to sin. Like when you're angry about the shooting of Ahmad Arbery, or any of these other lives that have been taken unjustly. But the caution here is that we need to be very careful when it comes to anger in our lives. Because if you allow anger to simmer too long, and you leave that pot on the stove overnight, and you keep that thing cooking, Paul's warning is that the devil actually has the habit of taking over the cooking process. And if you don't turn off the burner, you will literally be left with a pot of bitter, dark, burnt murder stew in your soul. See, you think being angry is not a big deal. According to Jesus, it's an immense deal. And it's literally giving a key to the devil to come into your house, the house of your soul, and telling him, be my personal chef and cook me a meal of murder. Now, anger can lead to physical murder. But for the most of us, um, we don't murder in this way. We'd probably not be here. We'd be in jail. But we are quite capable of a different kind of murder in that we murder verbally, actually, with our words. And this is something that all of us are guilty of. The Bible speaks about this, actually, in James chapter 4, verse 2. It reads this way. You desire and do not have, so you murder... You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. See, here I don't think James is talking about literal murder. But in context, he's talking about worldly passions and desires that cause dissension and strife amongst the people of God. Their worldly desires lead them basically to murder and destroy each other, I think, verbally with their words. See, just because you don't own a gun doesn't mean you're actually not carrying a deadly weapon with you. See, listen to what James chapter 3, verse 6 says about the tongue. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. See, what this text teaches us here is that an unchecked tongue is really an open portal to the fires of hell itself. And when it's unleashed on people, it burns and it tears down, it destroys. You know, as a kid, I grew up playing on the pra- playground. And most of my childhood wounds that I got from the knocks and scuffles that we had as kids have healed. But for those of us who have battled actually with words... Many of us, actually, I would still say, carry third-degree burns. That somebody else's flamethrower tongue has literally unleashed on us. And it's painful. You, you know, most of us would say, you know, that we don't hate anybody. And uh, this really could be true, but it might not be true as well. And we have to really think about what it means to hate another person. In fact, I think hatred can also be lovelessness. You know, I once heard someone define, for example, sarcasm as simply a way of covering contempt or hate. And and I think that actually can be quite true. I think sarcasm can be used in jokes, but we should actually be really careful of it because sarcasm can be used in a very dangerous way as well. So, for example, if a husband were to say to his wife, 
Hey, honey, great purchase on the new trash can. I guess now we can have twice as much junk in our house. You know, if you, you think about that, what is he actually saying with that sarcastic comment? What he's actually saying to her is, that was a really stupid purchase because all you're going to do right now is collect more garbage in this home. See, his sarcasm actually masks the fact that he has contempt for her in his heart. But in truth, it's actually cowardly and hellish to do that. See, instead of speaking constructively to say, Han, um, I'm afraid that the extra trash can that we just purchased will only encourage us to take out the trash less frequently and cause this house to be a lot smellier, which is actually offering a helpful opinion and trying to figure out a solution. The sarcastic comment really just passes out judgment in a moment and contempt indirectly. And so what happens is you look down on somebody else's activity uh, while actually rolling your eyes and functionally putting yourself into this seat uh, of I know best and that my opinion actually rides over yours. That's why I think it can be very dangerous actually to make a habit of speaking like this. So you may not think it, but actually if that is you, there is a level of pride and destructive hatred that has already found its way into your heart. And it will kill your soul if it's left unchecked. You know, in fact, it's actually very difficult, I think, to truly love people when you are passive-aggressive or contempt is a familiar language to you. You know, you can't really encourage people and discourage them at the same time, right? A spring doesn't pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water. And so neither can you rip down people with your tongue and try to upbuild them at the same time. You know, friends and brothers and sisters listening to this, I think it's a really good time for us to make a heart check when we think about these things. You know, when people look at you, what do they actually see? What do they experience from what you say? Would they look at you and say that you're a person who is gracious and your speech is seasoned with salt and that everywhere you go, you seem to bring blessing and honor and life uh, around you? Or do people see a person who is frivolous, thoughtless, or perhaps an individual who tears down with the tongue or shows contempt actually for others with words, or refuses to engage uh, constructively and instead backs out. See, if you have trouble thinking of the last time that you spoke something encouraging, it may just be that anger, indifference, and maybe even hatred and contempt for others has taken a root in your heart. And though you've maybe never thought about it in this way, that's actually what's there. And if that's true of you, I would urge you as a believer in Jesus Christ you know, to say, I don't want that, God. I see that. That is ugly. It doesn't represent you. I want to repent of my sin, and I want to turn to Jesus. Now help make me new so that I speak words of life the way that Jesus did so that I can be a blessing. You know, God absolutely condemns to hell anger burning in our hearts that destroys others with our words and our actions or even our lack of actions. Okay? Now, I know that some of you who are not believers perhaps may be listening to this well and you're thinking, no, I don't really believe that. That's kind of a downer pastor to hear this talk about my heart. I think actually my heart is actually pretty good. I get angry, but to compare it to murder is actually really quite ridiculous and I think a, a real stretch and a sense of hyperbole there. I could never kill anyone. To which I would like to say, or so you think. question is, do you really know yourself that well? 
See, if you want to really know what's inside of your heart and to, and, and, and to wonder whether or not you're capable of doing something like that, I would have to say just look in our own society at a very common experience that many of us engage in, and that is road rage. I think most of us are actually familiar with this because at all times or another, if you've driven a car, you've had a certain experiences on the road that have made you, let's just say, less than happy. Right? And you've done things that you kind of regret later. I've actually read quite a number of articles on this uh, from professors and universities that have put out that show basically that an ordinary person, an ordinary person behind the wheel, given the correct circumstances, can actually commit murder. And, and here's why, actually, there's a number of facts that, could, that can lead an ordinary person to do that, to do some unthinkable things because of a car. For instance, for example, one of the things they point out is, one, anonymity in a car actually functions almost like alcohol to remove your social inhibitions. So because you're obscured and you're kind of partially hidden from someone, you feel a little bit bolder you know, to do things you wouldn't normally do if you were exposed in public. Second thing that they have noted, for example, is the metal around your car gives you delusions of grandeur or illusions of power as well. So you feel more powerful than you actually are. And the bigger your car, the more powerful that you actually feel. Third thing as well, the distance from another person's face results in actually you treating that other person not like a person but like a thing. In other words, to coin a word, you you thingify them, you know. You look at them as an object, you know. And so when a person becomes subhuman, you are more inclined to treat them worse than you would if you realize that what is standing in front of you is a flesh and blood living person. Fourth thing is also that is shown in these studies is that 80% of drivers think that they're above average drivers, which, which I found funny because it's a statistical impossibility, right? You do the math, right? It's not possible. <laughs> So obviously something is wrong here. The point is, uh, when you consider all these factors, you throw in a traffic jam as well, and then you add an incredibly rude person who cuts you off and makes some very rude gestures to you on the road, the average Joe, coupled with all of these factors, might just go from being sweet Sally or average Joe to being the Incredible Hulk in a span of five seconds like that. And given the right circumstances, you will get a monster there on the road. And it will shock you, but it's real. You know, Darren Brown, the uh, magician, uh, had, a, had a, a program, a show called The Push, in which he shows that if you set up the right psychological pressures on people, he could actually get ordinary people to commit the act of murder and push someone else off of the edge of a building to their death. I'm not going to ruin it for you, but it's a fascinating psychological exercise to see. The point is of all of this is uh, really, given the right set of circumstances, you and I could do things that you, we couldn't possibly even imagine right now. And I want to suggest that the Bible is right in why that actually occurs, because there's actually fundamentally something wrong with our hearts. You know, I, I think that little seeds uh, are, are really one of the most amazing things in the world. And every year I plant in a garden, and uh, we've got tomatoes going this year, and I think we've got some peas and other things. And I've always been astounded to think that within that tiny little seed, there's a, there's a whole plant that's just waiting to spring out of that. You know, the thing that when you actually hold an, an acorn, you're holding right there potentially what could be an entire mighty sort of oak tree. You know, it's huge. You know, grows a hundred feet tall or more, weighs tons. I think what that 
anger and murder actually really have the same relationship between an acorn and a grown or oak tree. They're actually not entirely different. Anger and murder, uh, anger gets watered, nurtured into hatred, and then when it grows up fully, it becomes murder. But why that's important to understand is because the difference between an acorn and an oak is not one of quality, right? Like an acorn and an oak are the same sort of species. They're the same thing. One is just the infant form of the other, waiting to be nurtured and to grow up. And the same thing, I think, can be said, actually, when it comes to the human heart and about people, especially when we're talking about anger and murder, we need to understand that in this world, there's no such thing as just normal people who get angry, and then there are murderers as well. And we want to be able to say, of course, uh, to feel better about ourselves, I'm not anything like that. I'm qualitatively different from a murderer. But if you're a Christian, actually, and you hold to the biblical worldview, you actually can't say that. The Christian doesn't make a distinction between good people in this world and bad people in this world. Although, of course, normally speaking, we can talk about good things and bad things, you know, and criminals. We're not talking about that. We're talking spiritually here. When a Christian looks at the world spiritually through the eyes of God, we do not speak in terms of good people and bad people because the Bible simply says that all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, and there's only one kind of human being on the planet. It's called sinner in the eyes of God. And therefore, the difference between a murderer and a person like us, spiritually, is not one of qualitative difference, but one of quantitative difference. It is simply that their sin has gone to a specific degree that our sin has not gotten to. And so we can't really have pride and to think, I'm, no, I'm so different from that murderer. I'm so glad I'm not like that person. No, but for the grace of God, you are not like that. See, the Christian says the difference between human beings is really the amount and the presence of the grace of God. There aren't murderers and normal people. We're all sinners who are capable of murder. And if you actually believe that, you see, you can never actually look down on another person again. See, the Christian worldview is so incredibly humbling, you know, in this way. Now, that's anger in ourselves. And Jesus is very clear that God condemns that, okay? But what about anger in others? And this is where verses 23 to 26 kind of talk about. Now, as important as it is to deal with anger in ourselves, verses 23 to 24 actually shows that uh, we should actually be very concerned with anger for others as well. Now, it's kind of surprising because you almost expect it to say at this point, if you go and offer your gift at the altar, and there you remember that you have something against somebody else, you should go and... No, it actually doesn't say that. It says, if you remember that someone has something against you, then you leave your gift there at the altar and go. This is really interesting, actually, because the picture that's given here uh, is of another person's anger and how they feel really affects your ability to worship. You know, this, this scene that's painted here, Jesus is referring to, makes maybe little sense to us who don't uh, operate by going to a temple to worship. But to the worshipers of Jesus' day, they understood exactly what he was talking about. Probably for the most part, this was a worshiper who would have to leave their town and trek all the way to Jerusalem to offer a uh, specific sacrifice. And just as he's about to offer his uh, costly sacrifice, he realizes that he has wronged his brother, maybe sinned against them or committed some sort of fault. So he actually has to leave his gift there uh, next to the altar, trek all the way back, perhaps maybe taking a week of a journey, reconcile and then travel back to Jerusalem 
in order to be able to give his worship. Now, I think this is actually an, an implausible situation, but I think the reason, and, and really because um, you wouldn't actually leave your gift there at the altar for two weeks. It would either smell, or if it was a live animal, it would probably run away at this point. But, but I think Jesus tells the story basically to explain and to show the absolute importance of having right relationships with other people. And they're so important that even if you're offering a great gift to the Lord, it is better to go away for a week or two to make that right and come back and only then continue on in your act of worship before God. In other words, in God's eyes, reconciliation with other people is very, very, very important. And it's not optional. In fact, I would say that you learn two things, actually, from this text. One is that God can't have a relationship with us if we have broken relationships with other people, especially our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And the second thing is that Jesus' followers need to be people who initiate reconciliation when relationships are broken. So in other words, these verses here are the positive counterpart to the negative commands that were issued in verses 21 to 22, right? 21 to 22 is, do not be angry, don't do these things. 23 and onwards is showing us positively what disciples of Jesus should be about doing. So, in the first one, anger is condemned. In the second part here, reconciliation is commanded, right? So, negative and positive. See, what's more important than sacrifice is the spirit in which sacrifices are made to God. So in Amos chapter 5, verse 21, God said that he hated the Israelites' feasts and basically their solemn assemblies. Why? Because they were worshiping and trampling down the poor. And what is the solution? The solution here is in Amos 5, 24, says, But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Now, question for us we need to ask is, does this mean... That anytime somebody is angry with us, we actually cannot worship properly. Or that we should skip church and skip communion. And the answer to that, I want to say carefully, is not necessarily. For example, I think if you are a politician, you will always have people who are unhappy with you. Because they voted for the other guy. And no matter what you say, you might never be able to convince them that... um, because they're stuck in your opinions that you actually mean them well, they might actually choose to believe false things about you instead. I don't think what Jesus is saying here is to go find every upset person that you can as a politician in order to be able to worship God. And part of the reason why I would say that is uh, Jesus' own words if you go back a bit in the Sermon on the Mount. So, for example, if you look at what Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 has to say just a little before this, Jesus says, Blessed are you when other people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And why this is so critical, I think, to understand is because there will be times as Christians when people are angry at us falsely and might revile us and slander us. But verse 12 doesn't say, be reconciled and then worship. Not that reconciliation is unimportant, nor that you shouldn't try to correct these things, but it simply just says, if that happens to you falsely, and people are doing this, I would assume, willingly to you, it says, rejoice and be glad. See, in other words, as a true follower of Jesus, when you experience these things, which... Jesus says will actually happen to us. He says, go ahead and actually worship. 
See, followers of Jesus will suffer from insults. And in fact, when everybody says good things about you, that actually might be a problem. Luke chapter 6, verse 26 reads like this. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Right? Okay, so sure, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, right? But it's impossible to reconcile with people who believe lies about you and actually refuse to budge. And the hard part is sometimes even Christians who, when they're confronted about their sin, remain actually hard-hearted and they turn on their leaders or their friends who confront them about these sins and tell lies about them, recharacterize the situation, repaint it, and make false accusations about you despite your attempts to actually help them. And, 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 and I think the point is you can't be responsible for the results of reconciliation. But I do think that we are responsible to try. Romans twelve eighteen says this, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. See, the key phrase here is as far as it depends on you. Okay, So I think to sum it up, if we were to look carefully at what the Bible teaches, it's that we are responsible for sins or major errors that we make that bring damage or hurt other people. But you can't please everyone or expect your life to have no conflict at all whatsoever, especially if you're living for what is right. You will incur slander, condemnation, false accusations in your life from people who refuse to hear you and, 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 and want to treat you poorly. And in such cases, yes, we should attempt to reconcile, but we should not think that their continual anger or their false accusations of their slander in us will rob us of our ability to worship God. I think that's the best way to put all this teaching together. So I think what this means in the church is that when we legitimately hurt other people or that we sin against other people or um, uh, like other brothers and sisters in the congregation or even people outside of it, I think the point here is that we shouldn't just pretend to worship like nothing else has happened and carry on doing what we normally do. The point here is that God is actually not going to accept your worship. See, as soon as you know about something, the Christian response is to basically go out and to make attempts to seek reconciliation and to right those wrongs. And that is a high priority, especially if it's your fault. Really, it says here, drop everything, including your special gifts, and make sure you go and make this right before you attempt to go and worship God. So, I think, don't take communion, don't just function and do things that you normally would do. As far as it depends on you, try to be the first one to reconcile, make things right. For those who are younger, maybe I would just say to you, don't send emails, don't do text messages. Uh, those things really aren't conducive to... Uh, dialogue and, and trying to win your brother over, oftentimes those things might just be uh, uh, dumps, you know, on other people, allowing you to get anger off of your chest and maybe even sinning in the process of doing so. Guys, the goal of, of reconciliation is to win each other over in the love of Jesus Christ. And that's, that's why we do it as Christians, you know. In love, we go after each other, pursuing each other, trying to make things right. We pray, we pray, we pray, we seek God, and we say, God, please help me even as I go out and I do this. You know, this is the goal of our lives. 
It's not just putting our offering in the plate, singing a few songs, showing up to church in your Sunday best or whatever, and then going on and having horrible conflicts in your family or in your wife or living hypocritically in this way. You know, I think what John Piper says about this is absolutely right. He says, reconciliation is harder than donation. I think he's absolutely right to be able to say that. It's so critical, you know, that when things are wrong, that we do our very best to actually make it right, and that's high priority. You know, Christianity says to you, when somebody is hurt by you, it's your job actually to go, as difficult as it may be, to go and make sure that the relationship is restored. Don't just leave it. See, reconciliation is absolutely critical. And in some cases, like verses 25 to 26, which talks about an accuser, it says that when it involves those, I think, essentially outside the family of Christ, non-believers, the wise thing to do is actually to quickly make amends as soon as possible, lest it actually bring some major damage into your lifestyle. So there's a very practical component to it as well. So reconciliation, I know, can be very difficult. And sometimes it seems like it's a very scary fruit to try to pick but the truth is, and, and because it's just so high or even dangerous to get at, there's a lot at stake. But the truth is for Christians, I don't think there's any fruit that is sweeter to our taste than if you are able to taste the fruit of reconciliation. You know, during the course of this last week, I really had the opportunity as well, I feel, to practice this myself um, and to taste the sweet fruit of reconciliation. Um, I'd received, you know, comments from people, you know, um, in our church as well, just about the new paint job. Some uh, who spoke very favorably about it, and others as well that uh, spoke really negatively, you know, about it as well. Um, about the job that uh, that was done, basically, to try to enhance some of our imaging uh, for our video teams for our live streaming here. And you know, looking back on it, um, I felt really bad actually about it, as I realized that um, in my haste, you know, I had had blundered, and uh, in my thoughtlessness, I realized that people had actually been hurt as a result of my errors uh, and my mistakes uh, through a lack of consulting people and careful decision-making. And so it, uh, it was really difficult, actually, for me uh, to, to know that, not just because people are upset. Um, as a pastor over these number of years, I've had people who have been upset with me for various reasons, you know, some who have written false accusations and other things, but it's, it's, I think it is upsetting to us when we know that, that we ourselves are responsible, you know, for other people's pain. And so as I, I look back on it, uh, during this last week, um, as difficult as it was, you know, I called and I, I met with and, and engaged with all the people who had communicated with me as well. And, um, and, and I was really, I think, just really blessed, you know, to be able to see that uh, even through the pain as well, that, that people who did talk to me had expressed um, that, that they forgave me um, and they were really kind to me as well. And there was not a single person who um, has remained, as far as I can know, uh, from those who have spoken to me, angry with me, but, but allowed me to have the joy of reconciliation as well. And, you know, when I, I thought about it, you know, and, uh, and discussed this with the members yesterday and put into plan a new place of how to go forward in the future to make sure that things like this, you know, don't become unnecessary problems for us again. Um, I, I look back on it, I was just, you know, you know, really reflecting on that, and I thought to myself, such is a sweet thing to be able to have a family that you can disagree with and that you can actually hurt and suffer alongside, and yet, because of what Jesus Christ has done, in their lives as well, you know that it's in their heart as well to extend to you that kind of reconciliation and forgiveness. Unlike the world in which when we go out and we may say sorry to people, and the people in the world might snap at us and say, I'm never going to forgive you. 
in the church of Jesus Christ, because of what Christ has done and who we claim to be as our Lord and Savior, we should expect always that if we are to go in humility and forgiveness, that our brothers and sisters will never turn us out, but will receive us with open arms. Why? Because Jesus Christ himself will never turn us out, but will always welcome us with open arms. We are the only community in the world that has that kind of guarantee. And this is what I would say makes Christianity and the church of Jesus Christ so sweet and has a fruit that is wonderful to taste that the world can never actually know in that degree and in that depth. And I would say um, that's just an immense thing you know, I was really comforted and amazed at the same time to think that I was studying this very passage just as I was going through all of these things, you know, this week, the turmoil in my own soul. And I thought to myself, God, how amazing you are and providential in the way that you arrange things when you laid out this sermon series to give me the very text I would need to minister to my own soul and to tell me even what to do during this time. Like, only God basically could have prepared such a thing. You know, I was actually prepared this week to remove myself from the pulpit and actually hand the manuscript of my sermon to somebody else to read in case I was unable to personally right the wrongs, um, you know, with people in the church. And, and, and to that, as far as I know, like I said, um, everybody that I've spoken to as well has offered me forgiveness and reconciliation and, and, and lifted that burden of heaviness over my own heart. And I would still say to those, if there are others as well in the church and you're watching this actually right now, and this is the first time that you're hearing about this, I, I just want to be able to say, if I either have wronged you or hurt you or sinned against you in this last week or even in the weeks before, and, and maybe it has led to you actually bottling up anger in your heart and that anger is, is maybe turning into hatred in your own heart and may actually lead you to verbal murder. Uh, I would encourage you as well to go before God and speak to Him about what's in your heart and then after the service is done, to pick up your phone and actually call me and I'm very happy to be able to talk to you. This is what Jesus commands for us, not to torture us, but so that we might be a community of God followers who represent His love, His reconciliation to a world that so badly needs this. And that's why I can feel free, at least now, to preach today. You know, I've always said to people who've asked me about my best friends and those whom I love the most, my best friends are not the people that I've never had a cross word with. In fact, I would think that people you've never actually had a cross word with um, aren't people that you actually know very deeply at all. In fact, I would always say that my best friends are those that I have sinned against and actually who have sinned against me, but we have had the privilege of seeing Jesus Christ work his reconciliation in our lives and are still together with me today. And it gives me so much hope for the future because I never have to think or believe that I am just one mistake away from losing that relationship. I've seen that relationship damaged before and I know that if Jesus continues to give his grace, I will continue to have that relationship as long as the Lord gives us grace. See, all I want to say, brothers and sisters, is this, is that to have a church family full of brothers and sisters who offer this kind of grace to each other because of what Jesus has done is an immense, invaluable, and a divine gift that we should not take for granted as a church. It's vital. Reconciliation is absolutely vital to being a Christian, and a lack of reconciliation actually affects our ability to worship God. That's how important it is. So it is better for you to skip a church service 
If that's the only time that you can meet and talk to a brother or sister whom you've offended or has a fault against you and reconcile and make that right before you actually continue on with your ordinary worship. So, you know, as I close today, brother and sister, I just want to ask, you know, are there any of you today who are struggling with anger or hatred or even verbal murder in your lives right now? You know, you have broken relationships either in your home or your families or at work or with somebody who was your friend, but because of things that you have said, either thoughtlessly or stupidly as well, have done great damage right now. And what I want to say to you is based on this text is God actually cares about that. And he actually wants you to mend those relationships. He doesn't want you to harbor anger, which will ultimately lead you to a place uh, that unchecked will condemn you to the fires of hell as you denigrate the work of Jesus Christ, who forgave you and did not remain angry with you, and yet you could not release your anger for another person. Don't, Don't let the sun go down on your anger today. If there's somebody you've got to make this right with today, do it before the sun goes down today. See, do you know how Christianity actually frees you to get rid of anger. You know, I'll tell you this story of Tim Keller that I think actually reflects every pastor's worst nightmare. You know, I've had these nightmares as well. Keller had always struggled, he said, with his anger for people who would show up late to his meetings, and he just found this, you know, in his own soul. However, there was one day that he was supposed to do a wedding, but basically he got the time wrong, and he ended up showing late, showing up late. And he was supposed to officiate this thing. And because he came in 15 minutes late, he ended up sitting at the back of the sanctuary, absolutely mortified as he watched the secondary pastor step up to the plate and basically have to do the wedding in his absence. And he went up to the couple afters. He felt absolutely sick and terrible, but he said they forgave him, you know, and they healed his soul in that moment as they offered him grace, saying that it could have happened to anyone. And in that one moment, it actually changed him as an individual because he was so touched by it. So here's my point. When someone forgives you something like that, so great a debt, like, wish, like missing, officiating the wedding that you were supposed to do for them, that's a big miss. And you realize that grace has been extended to you. Can you not forgive another person their lesser debts against you? See, if you've experienced that kind of grace in your own life, you can give grace then to other people. And I think that's, that's what really changes an individual. If you realize that God has every reason to be angry at you for your sins, your faults, your hypocrisy, your lateness in showing up to him, your treating him second, your murderous tongue, and yet he didn't hate you, but he loved you and sent his own son on the cross to die for your sins, he paid your debt so that you don't have to be, you don't have to be condemned, He's not angry with you, you know, because he sent his son in love, you know, for you. That's what can actually diffuse anger in your own soul. See, the key to releasing anger is to understand that God released his anger over your own, the anger that he could have directed towards you by giving you his very own son. And if you understand you're a recipient of grace, then you can go out and be free from anger and hatred and say, I want to be a grace giver because to be angry would to to make light of the grace that God has given to me. And so we honor the work and person of Jesus. Church, all I want to say, as I reiterate here, is are there broken relationships in your life that need mending right now? And if they are, can you trust that following Jesus and obeying God and reconciling these relationships will allow you to taste the sweet fruit of reconciliation? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I know you are a God who reads the heart. And it's not enough, God, to just worship you with our lips while living in sin or broken relationships with each other. 
God, I just pray that you would help us to appreciate deeply how you did not treat us as our sins deserve, but you gave us grace so that we might be dispensers of grace in this world. Father, help us never be proud or to never measure our Christianity by saying, I fast twice a day, I pay tithes of all I have, I've never committed adultery or murder. Help us to take the tax collector's portion, posture and say, have mercy on me, Lord, for I'm a sinner. God, help us to be agents of grace and reconciliation. And we praise you for the greatest act of reconciliation that you gave us through the amazing grace that comes through your Son, Jesus Christ. We praise you and we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.